If you have your Bibles, be in John chapter 6. Today, as we work through this wonderful chapter, we talked about last week of why do we believe what we believe? Why do we hold to the doctrines of grace? Why do we believe in predestination? Why do we believe in election? Why do we believe in perseverance of the saints? Why do we believe those things? Well, the Bible teaches it from start to end, but we find such rich verses on these topics in John chapter 6. And today is no different. As these words are coming out of the lips of our Lord as He's teaching these wonderful truths. We left off last time we met in verse 47. So we're going to read verses 48 through 63. I know what you're thinking. It's okay. We will get through it. So follow along with me here in John chapter 6, verses 48 through 63. Here's what it says. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the, fa as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. And these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh Prophets, nothing. The words that I have spoke to you are spirit and are life. Are those hard sayings to hear today? They're difficult sayings to hear, aren't they? But these are out of the lips of our Lord. And let us not be like some of these people that listened here that turned and decided, it's not for me. Let's pray over these verses. Father, we thank you again for this wonderful day. Thank you that we get to come on the Lord's day, gather with your people. Lord, sing to you, rejoice unto you, praise you, seek you, and honor you today. Lord, we are to come with a sense of reverence and awe of who you are. And I pray that we would come with the hearts of true worship to worship you in spirit and in truth and that we would set our hearts upon you and you alone. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding in these verses as they are are difficult sometimes to hear and understand. Father, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, and to direct us into what you are teaching in these verses. And Lord, we're confident of one thing, that if we understand them as you intended, then we will love you more and we will grow in our walk with you. So please help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. I want to bring you back just for a moment to where we picked up this week and where we left off last week. If you remember that it started with him saying that that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. And then he goes into the reasoning behind it and he tells us that all that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, all the Father that, that gives to me, they will come to me. He gives them, they will come, and I will not cast them out. The only ones who are seeking after God are those who have been regenerated because the Bible says that in our unregenerate state, there's no one who seeks God. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 speaks of that. And then he says that he's come down not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father, if you remember, was that all that the Father had given to the Son, that all would come to him and that he would raise all those up on the last day. Again, this is predestination. This is election. The Father gives to the Son. And then here we see the effectual call because all that the Father gives, they come and they're raised on the last day. There's the perseverance of the saints. He come to do the Father's will and all that believe. And we know that those who believe are those who have been appointed to eternal life. Acts 13, 48, they have eternal life and Christ himself will raise them up on the last day. And we went down to verse 44 and we said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a necessary condition. That is no one. No one can come to God in their unregenerate state unless the Father who sent him draws them. And if he draws them, they come. That's a guarantee because all that he draws are raised on the last day. If he draws everyone the same, then everyone is raised with him on the last day, which quickly turns into universalism. This is not what is in view here. It's a very selective group. It is the elect. It's the chosen. They're given. They come. They're raised on the last day. They're the ones that are drawn. That is the effectual call. They come. And he says in verse 47, all all who believe has eternal life. And we said that all who will believe are the same ones who are given before the world was. They're the ones that are drawn. They're the ones that come to him. Those are the ones who have been appointed to eternal life. And then we continue today going back to what we've already heard him speak on, this bread of life. You've heard him speak of this in John chapter 6 already, but he's going to elaborate on that a little bit more. And this is where he starts off in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, if you remember, and you know this, but we'll continue to just bring it to our attention every time we come to this, that he uses the I am statement. And there are seven I am statements throughout the gospel. According to John, we'll see that a little bit as we progress through this book. But when he takes that word, I am, we know that in the Greek that translates into the ego, I me. And that is the Greek rendering of the name of God that we find in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. That is Yahweh. So when God says, ego, I me, when Christ says, ego, I me, he is referencing his deity. He is declaring he is the one that was in the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. So this is a claim to deity. Ego, I me, I am, I am God, I am Yahweh. But we see now he 
He says that. He claims that, but now he's going to add it with a metaphor to describe him and, and what he brings in this situation. And he says, I am, ego I me, the bread of life. Now, we've already heard that. We see that he has mentioned that earlier on in this chapter, but he comes and he says it again. And in verse 49, he says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which came down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. We know that the manna in the Old Testament is a shadow pointing to Christ. We know that the Father sent the bread of, from heaven and fed them in their wilderness journey. It was the Father who sent this bread that they were able to eat on. And it is the Father who sends the true bread. It is the Father who sends the Son down to this world. And those who ate the manna in the Old Testament, they died. However, those who partake of partaking of Christ, the true bread, they feast on Him, the one who came down from heaven, they will not die spiritually. They'll have eternal life. And He's the only source of eternal life. He's the true bread that came down out of heaven. And if one eats this bread, they'll never die spiritually. But as has already been promised, they will have eternal life. So He's comparing and contrasting. The bread from heaven, the manna, was sent from the Father in the Old Testament, but it couldn't give eternal life. And the Father sends the true bread, the bread of life, which is His Son, and all that partake of Him, they will have eternal life and never die, but rather live with Him forever. He goes on to say that in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, in this verse, we see that he's, he is reiterating that he is the living bread. He's the son of man. This is a theme that you'll see. That's why Jesus has used the son of man title more than any other title. You've heard me say that. But it's important because you see that it, it goes right along with his mission to come down from heaven. And then it speaks to ascending to the Father. And again, over and over through John 6, you see, I am the one who came down. I'm the one who was sent. I come down from heaven. This is speaking of that title of the Son of Man that we find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and also in John 3, verse 13. We know that the Father sent him and he put a seal upon him. And Jesus here is speaking about what is going to happen in just a short period of time. He says that the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's looking forward to the cross. You remember in the, the Last Supper where he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. He's saying the, the flesh, the, the bread that I'm going to give is my life, my body. It's going to be broken on a cross. I'm going to die for my people, die for the ones that the Father has given me. He's speaking of that moment. He's speaking of the moment that his body would be broken as he would lay down his life sacrificially for the sheep. Again, that's the same ones the Father had given him. This is a consistent group of people that you're going to find through this chapter. And we see that his body was broken and his blood was shed to redeem and purchase those that the Father had given him. And he does give this to the life of the world. Not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. Again, if we think that it is for everyone, then it turns into universalism really quickly, even in this verse. It cannot be. But he's going to come and give his life on a cross, his body broken, his blood shed. In verse 50, 
2, we see the response to this. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They think that Jesus is literally talking about eating his flesh. I mean, they think that he's talking about cannibalism here. We have to eat this guy's flesh to have eternal life? Again, they missed the point all along, don't they? How many times have you seen that Jesus is trying to teach them something spiritually? They, they put it to the actual here, the physical application of it, and they have no idea what's going on. The lady at the well, give me this water. Well, it's spiritual water. Give us this bread. Well, it's spiritual bread. And here they, they begin to argue amongst themselves. They, they believe that Jesus is speaking of actually eating his flesh, but he's not. He's not speaking of that. He's speaking in spiritual application here. But this has caused them to be in an uproar, which leads Jesus to a great response in verse 53. Any verse that has the words truly, truly in it. I know I sound like a broken record, but we are to take note. Listen up, because this is of great importance. Jesus knows they're grumbling, and he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can you imagine what's going through their mind at this point? We have to not only eat his flesh, but now we have to drink his blood, and that's the only way we can have eternal life? Again, they're missing the point all along. But look, I want you to draw your attention to this, is this is the same group that we mentioned last week. The one who will eat his flesh and drink his blood are the same ones that the Father gives to the Son, they're the same ones that he draws. They're the same ones that he teaches. They're the same ones that hear his voice. They're the same group of people. Look what it says. All that do this, he will raise them up on the last day. We've already seen that in verses 39 and 40 of this chapter. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Same group of people. Those who eat the flesh, drink the blood, are the ones that the Father's given. They're the ones that are raised up on the last day. They're the ones that believe. And in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is the same group of people. Do you want to know who will eat his flesh and drink his blood? It's the elect. It's the ones chosen before the world was. It is those whom have been given to the Son. It's the ones that have been drawn. It is the same group of people. And we know there's importance here because Jesus says truly, truly. And look what we find here in verse 53. We find a necessary condition. And we find that necessary condition in the word unless. We've already seen one necessary condition in verse 44. No one can come to me unless these things have to take place before. No one can come unless, and you'll see that in verse 44, it is from the sovereign working of God. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Dependent on the Father. 
We see that's a necessary condition in verse 44. And here in verse 53, the necessary condition to have eternal life is that you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. Again, what is he saying here? Well, we begin to look at the spiritual applications of this. He says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this eating his flesh and drinking his blood are spiritual metaphors. He is speaking of himself. And if you stop and think about it, we have to drink and we have to eat physical food and water to stay alive. And for us to have eternal life, we must be partakers of his body and his blood, which is believing in what he did on the cross. His body broken, his blood shed, that is the body, that is the bread, and his blood is in reference here. We are to feast on him. We are to believe in him, believe in his works. That is necessity because it says all that believe in him will have eternal life. This is a feasting on the sun. This is the one that we go to to satisfy our spiritual hunger. He is the one who satisfies our spiritual thirst. He is the one that we believe in. Do you believe in His work upon the cross? Do you believe in the bread, the body that was broken? Yes. Do you believe in the blood that was shed? That's what's in reference here of eating His flesh and drinking His blood, consuming that thought, believing in that, being consumed by that, feasting on that, holding to that with all your being. And we see another a clue to this. We find it in verse 56, where he says, For he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We've seen this before, and we're going to see it a little bit in the future here, but we look at those words, abides in me. So the one who eats his flesh, drinks his blood, or believes in that work, believes in him, comes to him, for their spiritual nutrition, if you will, are the ones that abide in Him. Now we find this in John chapter 15. There's another I am statement of Christ. And we find it in verse 1 of chapter 15 of this gospel account. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. As we listen to read these verses, listen to the terminology in him, abiding in him. Listen, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he also takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him. He bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. There's an abiding here, abiding in him. And, and he goes back to here in John 6, and this is what he's saying. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. 
We have no life in ourselves. We have no spiritual goodness in us. And for us to drink his blood and eat his flesh is to believe in his work, believe in his body, believe in his, the blood that was shed, and to constantly be feasting on that, to be in union with his son based on belief in what his son has done. We find this again also in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. We see this in verses 20 through 26. Again, you will hear the words of Christ. Abide in me, in you, in me. It is a union that is here. He says, I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, even as your father are in me and I in you. That they may be also, they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. It's just a constant reminder of our union in Christ. The ones who eat his flesh and drink his blood are the same group. It's the elect. It's the chosen. It's those who believe. It's all those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and all those who know that they have no life in themselves and they must feast continuously on the true bread of life. And you'll see that this is not just a one time thing. It is a continuous rooting into this vine. It is a continuous eating. It's a fellowship with him. It's a believing in his works. That speaks to the perseverance of the saints. That the true believer will feast upon Christ, be partakers of him, be partakers of his death. Because what does the Bible tell us? That we are in union with his death. We are in union with his resurrection. We are in union. We're in him. You will either die in Christ or you will die in Adam. We have to be in Christ. We have to be in Him, abiding in Him, feasting on Him, believing in the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. This is what He's talking about. Believing in Him, believing in His work, feasting on Him, not eating His flesh and drinking His blood, literally. We even see that in the Old Testament, that was forbidden. To drink blood and to eat flesh that had blood in it, that was forbidden. We know that's not the case. It's the union of Christ that we have eternal life because we are partakers of Christ via His life, His death, His resurrection, and His sonship. We live because we abide in Him. That's what verse 57 is going to say. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. There's the union. And then he reiterates it in verse 58. This is the bread which come down, came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. You come and you feast on Christ. You believe in his works. You believe in his death. Then you will have eternal life. Verse 59 tells us that these things he taught while he was in the synagogue in Capernaum. Remember how he got to Capernaum. 
You remember that he had fed the multitude there? And then the disciples got in the boat and they started to head across and there came a great storm and Jesus was up alone praying and as they were on the storm and the, out on the boat and the storm was raging, he comes walking on the water, declares he's ego I me. And what happens? He gets in the boat and they're immediately on the shore in Capernaum. This is where he's been in this whole time. And now he's teaching in the synagogue. And look what, again, their response is in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Is this difficult for you to hear today? It just, you hear these verses read and it just, sometimes you're like, that's just hard to hear. That's a difficult thing for me to hear. This is difficult. Who can listen? You realize that Jesus had a lot of hard sayings, a lot of difficult things. But that doesn't make them any less true. And what are they doing as a response? They start to grumble. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumble at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? We see that this isn't the first time they've grumbled. Look in verse 41. It says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And he's just went through these, these sections of verses here that talks about he's the true bread. You must eat of his flesh. You must drink of his blood. You must believe in him. Yeah. And here they go back to grumbling again. They do not like the fact that he says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Why wouldn't they like that? Why wouldn't they like him saying that he is the bread that came down from heaven because he's claiming deity. To say that he's came down from heaven meant that he had to have fellowship with the Father in heaven. And they can't get over this. Remember what they said earlier, we know his parents. How can this be the guy that came down from heaven? They grumbled that he came down from heaven before he told them that he did. They grumbled at that. Here we are again. Now he's saying, I didn't only just come down from heaven. I'm not only the bread of life that just came down from heaven. You must feast upon me to have eternal life. What do you think they thought you had to do to have eternal life? Well, you remember the story of Nicodemus, the one who taught? He was the teacher of the Jews. He had no idea what it meant to have eternal life. And these people did not either. And he knows they're grumbling at the fact that he is claiming deity as he's the one that sent from the Father to this earth. And he says this, does this cause you to stumble? Look what he says in verse 62. What then? If you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. Who's the only one who can ascend into heaven? The one who first descended to this earth. The Son of Man. That's why Jesus uses that title. It's a title that shows his incarnation. It shows his preexistence. It shows that he's sent from the Father. But then it also shows his glorification. It shows that he's raised by the Father. And he's ruling and reigning. And he has authority and dominion. And if the thought of him coming down to earth offended them. He says, let me tell you something really offensive. How much do you think it would cause you to stumble if you saw me ascend in all my glory back to where I come from? I am the one who came down from heaven, 
but I'm also the one who's going back to where I came to ascend to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign forever. You're getting tripped up on this. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? That's what John 3.13 says. No one has ascended into heaven, but He who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Let me just read this really quick in Daniel. I wasn't going to read it out, but listen, just so you can see Again, to review what the Son of Man is in reference to. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this. This is Daniel's vision. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The one who ascends to that is the one who descends first. They were so upset that He claimed that He is the one who descended and He says, what then? If you see me ascend, because that's what I'm going to do to the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And this picture that we see of Him ruling and reigning in authority is where we started this service at today, saying that the, the political maximum that we have comfort in is this. The Lord reigns. He's ascended. And He's reigning as we speak. I wonder how that offended them. Well, we're going to find out before this chapter is over that it offended them enough that most everyone that claimed to follow Him leaves. And these weren't true disciples. These were the ones who claimed it. These are the ones who false professed it. Those are the ones who are following him for various reasons other than the true reasons. And they begin to turn away and walk away by some of his teachings. Some of his teachings are hard. Some of of them hit us right in the, the gut sometimes, but they are truth. And verse 63 is what we'll spend the remaining portion of our time on because it's an important verse. Not only in some of the debates that had went on in history, but also based on how we have life and how we have spiritual life. Look what he says in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. Look what he's saying. It is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Holy Spirit who brings regeneration. You want to proof that regeneration precedes faith? You're going to find it in this verse. So many people believe that in our fallen state, in our flesh, there's something left in us that has not been totally corrupted, that we can come and place faith in Christ and in that faith, and here comes our regeneration. That we can somehow do something to bring us to eternal life and regeneration and spiritual resurrection. But what we're going to find out in this verse is that it is the Spirit who gives life and the flesh profits absolutely nothing. The flesh cannot bring you to spiritual life. The flesh only produces flesh. It is the Spirit that produces things of the Spirit. This speaks to man's inability in our flesh to bring about regeneration. 
Because flesh does not produce spiritual life or eternal life. It only comes from the Spirit. It's the Spirit who brings a dead soul to life. Your flesh cannot do it. No one's flesh can ever do it. You are unable. And you know what this speaks of? This speaks of God's sovereign hand and mercy and power and grace upon His elect in regeneration. It is a sovereign hand of God that brings us to life. It is a sovereign mercy of God that brings our soul from death to spiritual life. It is something that you and I could never do on our own, and we are dependent on the Holy Spirit sent by the Father to bring about this life and regeneration. You and I are hopeless. You and I are helpless. You and I in our flesh cannot do anything that produces life. This speaks of God's sovereign hand in salvation. And you know the way that I see it? If it's God that we're dependent on for salvation, then do you know who gets all the glory for that? It is God who gets all the glory in our rebirth, which eliminates all pride, which eliminates all uh, boasting, which eliminates it all. You and I in our flesh cannot produce things of the Spirit. You and I cannot respond to the things of the Spirit. We cannot do that. The flesh profits nothing. Uh, this is the text, one of them, that proves regeneration precedes faith because in our flesh we cannot produce life. And that's what regeneration is, bringing a soul to life. You had nothing to do with your regeneration. You did call on Him. If you've been born again, you did call on Him. You did place faith in Him. You did profess Him. But that's an impossibility without the sovereign hand of God regenerating your soul first. Look at these verses that talk about the flesh. And the Spirit and how the flesh profits nothing and the Spirit is what brings life. Let's go back to John 3. We mentioned it previously, but let's talk about Nicodemus just for a moment. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, it says this, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless... That's a necessary condition. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You will see in here that at first, he's going to say you can't see the kingdom of God. A little later, he's going to say you can't enter the kingdom of God. So to be able to see the truths of the gospel, to see the truths of what he's saying, to be taught, to be heard from him, that cannot happen unless one is first born again. Again, that speaks to what we talked about last week. Those that the Father draws. Those are the ones that are taught by him. Those are the ones that hear him. Those are the ones whose eyes have been opened but that can't occur unless you've been born again first. It's the regeneration that precedes all these things. It is God that is sovereign in the regeneration. Unless one is born again, and let me just stop you there for a second, just to make a distinction. In that original language, it can translate into born from above. That born again translates into born from above. Now that really eliminates us, doesn't it? What brought you to spiritual rebirth? From above. It comes from above. You've been born from above, not from in yourself, not from your flesh, which is tarnished and tainted and has radical corruption. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, and be born can he? Again, do you see how many times... So many, they, they, they hold on to the physical and they miss the spiritual applications in this. Jesus answered, truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse six, 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Do you know what flesh produces? Flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The flesh profits nothing, right? It is from above that we are born again. It is from the spirit that we are regenerated. It is not in our flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. That means he has sovereign power to go wherever he desires and regenerate whom he desires. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are, uh, are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. This begins to show our relationship with God before we're born again. We're hostile to Him. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Now listen to this inability. If you've ever heard that, yeah, when you're fallen state, there's still something in you that could come to Christ and please Him. There's still a little bit left in you to do that. You're not fully, fully corrupt. Well, the Bible would tell us otherwise today. It says this. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. You can't do it. Unable to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see the inability in our flesh? You're hostile to God. You are unable to do anything pleasing to God. That's what the Bible says. And he says, he goes a little bit farther in verse 9. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So what is the qualification to be in the flesh versus in the spirit, those who are in the spirit are the ones that the Holy Spirit indwells. Those are the ones who've been born again. And if you've not been born again, your mind is hostile to God and you are unable to submit to the things of God. You are unable. You have no hope. You cannot bring yourself to spiritual life. No one can. The flesh counts for nothing. Romans chapter 7, verses eight, or verse 18, Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing present in me, but the doing of it is not. The only good that a human being ever has is when the Holy Spirit indwells them. In our flesh, we have absolutely nothing good in us. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh cannot bring rebirth. The flesh cannot produce regeneration. The flesh is dependent on a holy, merciful, sovereign God to bring that change and that life to. And just again, Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, as, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one in our flesh before He regenerates our soul, that we seek after Him. That's why all that come to Him, they've been regenerated. Those are the ones that have been given by the Father. That's why He doesn't cast any of them out. But before He changes us, before He regenerates us and causes us to be born again, there is not one single person in their flesh that can do the things pleasing to God and that seek after God, period. You don't seek God until He regenerates your soul. That is where your seeking starts. 
All the verses in the Bible that says, seek a him, call on him, you know, ask of me, seek me. All those verses are after regeneration. That is the Christian. We don't seek God before he regenerates our soul. But then once he does, boy, the seeking begins. That is when we hunger and we thirst after him and we seek him. Sometimes that's hard to think about, isn't it? That before he saved you mercifully and sovereignly, you didn't want anything to do with him. Hostile towards him, enmity with him, at war with him, no peace with him, not for one single second earnestly seeking after God. Because the flesh profits nothing. And the flesh can do nothing pleasing to God. It's unable to do so. It's actually running as fast as they can from God. It's like John says that before he brings us into the light, we're in the darkness and we don't want to come to the light because our deeds are evil. We hate the light before he brings us into the kingdom of his son, into that marvelous light. Do you see the hopelessness of this? Do you see what he's saying here? Of You have no life in yourself. You are completely dependent on the merciful, sovereign hand of God to bring life to you. All of us who are Christians, that is what happened to us. You would never do anything pleasing to God, running from God, not seeking God. Your flesh could do nothing about it. But the one that the Father had given to the Son and the ones that the Son has died for and then the Holy Spirit is sent to regenerate those people to do what they couldn't do. You know, so many times there's so many views that ask a person to do the impossible. To ask someone to make a decision for Christ, to ask someone to believe in Christ without first being born again is asking the impossible. You can't. The flesh profits nothing. The Spirit brings life. And if you've ever called out to Him, if you've ever been a partaker of His flesh and His blood by believing in His work on the cross, know that you've done that because the Spirit has brought you life. And we see this also in history. This isn't a new thing that we see here about the flesh profits nothing. We can go all the way back to the 5th century. Bear with me as we give a little, go back a little historical view here. Back in the 5th century, there was a, a view called Pelagianism. And Pelagianism held to the view that there was no original sin. Held to the view that man was not fully corrupt that there was still goodness in man and they had the absolute ability, their free will, they could choose the things of God because they weren't corrupted by the stain of sin and that they weren't totally in depravity and that they had the ability to come and to call on Christ because they are good creatures. That was Pelagianism. And then I believe it was in the Council of Carthage in 418, I do believe that that was deemed heresy and Mr. Pelagian was excommunicated from the church. That was who Augustine really debated with in the 5th century was Pelagius. Deemed heresy to say that there's no original sin and that man has something in you to produce this life. That was considered heresy in the 5th century and that man was excommunicated from the church. Well, a little bit later, we come and now we have semi-Pelagianism. We want to try to still sneak that view in there, but we know that 
Pelagianism was heresy. So what do we do now? Well, this view held that they did believe in total depravity. They did believe that man was fallen. However, not all of you. Not every part of you was corrupt. And in semi-Pelagianism, there was still just a little bit of good. Just a little bit of good left in your fallen state. Just a little bit in your flesh that wasn't fully corrupted. And in that little portion that was still good, that flesh of you could then choose the things of God. Well, we see a form of that today. And I grew up in a lot of a form of that. Because Arminianism speaks the same thing. I know people, I know people, I have friends that say they believe in the doctrine of total depravity, but they believe that man could somehow in their flesh choose the things of God before God brings them to spiritual life. You don't believe in the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption if that's what you hold to. Because in that view, man is unable. Total corruption means that every facet, every aspect of our body, our minds, our thoughts, our inclinations has been corrupted and there's nothing in our flesh that will ever choose or come to the things of God on our own. We have nothing in us to do that. And we could sit here all day and read verse after verse. You've read some of them. Those who are in the flesh can do nothing pleasing to God. No one seeks God. We're in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We cannot do it. but some still hold to that. That there's just a little bit left in you that you really don't need the Spirit to bring you to life to make that coming to Christ, that you can do it in your own flesh. That's just not true. You can't do it. There's nothing in you that would do that. The flesh counts for nothing. It is the Spirit that brings life. And I think one of the greatest lines to really strike to the heart of this, one of the greatest quotes from verse 63 that says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, come from Martin Luther. Martin Luther had an opponent, if you will, and his name was Desiderius Erasmus. He was from Rotterdam and he did not believe in the doctrines of grace. He did not believe in predestination. He did not believe in those things. And he wrote things against Luther, and he was coming against him and basically debating him, if you will, on what he believed. And this Desiderius Erasmus held to this view that there was still just a little bit of something in fallen man that they could come to Christ on their own. Even though the Bible says that we can't, they held it, yeah, but we don't want to give God all the glory, right? We don't want to make Him totally sovereign over salvation. We want to have something to do with it. And Desiderius Erasmus believed that there was a little something left in every fallen man that could then come and take that little something that's not fallen and produce faith in Christ. And Luther comes to Verse 63, which you've just read, the same verse. And in his, as he's exegeting this verse, do you know what he says to Desiderius Erasmus? Mr. Erasmus, that nothing is not a little something. And that's it. The flesh profits nothing. 
And Luther tells him that that nothing is not a little something. That nothing is nothing. And you can't do it on your own. And that's the great, that's a great exegetical view of this verse. That you can do nothing. Not even a little bit is in you to respond to the gospel without his regeneration upon you first. That nothing is not a little something. It is by the sovereign hand of God. And look what he goes on to say. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Think about his words. Let's go all the way back to creation as we get to wind down. There was a time when it was just the Godhead and then nothingness. And out of that nothingness came everything with by His words He spoke creation into existence. It is by His words that He brought life. It is by His words that He brought everything that there is. He is the Creator. It is by His words that He brought life. It is by His words that you and I if we're Christians, that He came to the corpse, the, the tomb of our dead souls, and by His words, He raised us to spiritual life. Arise, is what He said to our soul. Let there be light. Those are the words that He speaks into the soul of those that are His. He brings us from death to life, and He does that by the power of His word. The same, the same voice that created everything and spoke the world into existence and brought life is the same voice that brings us spiritual life in our regeneration because our flesh counts for nothing, profits nothing. But where else do we see that His words are spirit in life? They're in front of you today. They're in front of you today in the Holy Scriptures. In His Word, there is life. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is by the Word of God that our souls are made alive to the things of God. It is by His words that we find life and hope and strength and comfort to our souls. This is why there's such an importance on the Bible. This is why our church puts so much emphasis on His Word. Because you can't go wrong by reading from the words of God. How do you go wrong with that? Explain to me how you can go wrong with opening the Bible and reading the words of God, which are spirit and life. You can't. This is where He's placed His emphasis on His Word. Do you love to read the Bible? Ask yourself, do you love to read His Word? Do you know what you'll find in His Word? Life. He'll make your soul alive. It is by the Word of God that those who have been born again hear the message and can respond. It is by that seed that causes the faith to well up and, and call out to God. It is by His words that that drawing occurs and His teaching occurs. And it is by His same Word that those who have been saved, have been justified, grow, grow in Christ and draw strength and bring their soul 
to live to the things of God. Do you love to hear the Scripture being read? Did you love to hear 20 verses read at the start of this service, or does that bore you? Does that bother you? How dare we ever say that? How dare we ever say that we get tired of hearing the Word of God? Do you realize what we're saying? These are His words. These are the words of spirit and life. No other place can it be found outside of Him. As Christians, we should never tire of hearing His Word, reading His Word, listening to His Word, studying His Word. Because do you know what you'll find in them? Do you know what you'll find in the, these pages right here? Life. Spirit and life are found here. You don't have to go run and look for it. You don't have to turn up every stone to see if you can find spirit and life there. You've got it right in front of you. His word is spirit and life. Has it made your soul come alive? Has his words burned in your soul like they never have before? Do you remember when on the road to Emmaus, as he is going through the Old Testament, he's showing how the prophets and the Psalms and, and Moses were all about him. And after he leaves those two disciples, Cleopas and the other unnamed one, do you remember what their response was? Did our heart not burn within us when he told us these things? As he's expounding on the scripture, did our heart not burn? His word brings us alive. His words are life and spirit. So I challenge you often to run to his word, daily to run to his word. I heard a, a quote, I forget who it was by, but he said this, those who run from God in the morning, very rarely find him throughout the rest of the day. I thought that's an amazing, that's an amazing thought. You put him off in reading in the morning. You put him to the side in the morning. There's going to be a lot of days you scarcely find time to find him throughout the day. Seek him early. Seek him often. Be in his word often. Because it is life and spirit. And I'll leave you with this thought. As we ponder. I just want you to ponder this. I want you to think about what he's saying here to these people and to us. In these verses, you have heard election. You've heard predestination. You've heard an effectual call. You've heard perseverance of the saints. You've heard it all so far in John chapter 6. But today, I want you to think about, are you feasting on Him? Are you partakers of Him as the living bread? Do you believe in the body that was broken, the blood that was shed? Are you continuously abiding in Him, that truth? Are you in fellowship with Him, feasting on Him? Because in Him is the only source of eternal life. But I also want you to think about your hopelessness in your own flesh. Your hopelessness in your own flesh. Your flesh profits nothing. That nothing is not a little something. You are dependent on the merciful hand of God to bring you to life because it is spirit that brings life in our souls. Speaking of his word as life, if he has come to the tomb of your soul and with his words, He's brought you to life. Then you know what we can say? That you can guarantee and you could know with all certainty that if He has come and by His Spirit has brought you to spiritual resurrection and 
in Him now you have life. Here's what you know. Before the world was, the Father gave you to His Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these words that we hear today. We thank You for showing us again how unable we are to come to You unless, Lord, let us realize how many necessary conditions are in Your Word and how many of them are from You, from Your sovereign hand. Unless. It's so vital. Lord, thank You that You are the one who gives. You are the one who draws. You are the one who brings life. You are the one who seals us, God. You are the one who gives us the promise of resurrection. Lord, you are the one who came to die. You are the one who do all that needed to be done to accomplish the plan. Lord, let us understand our hopelessness today without you. Let us understand how our flesh profits nothing. And Lord, with that, let us set our attention to you our thanks to you, our worship to you, because we are completely dependent on you. Unless you had given us, unless you had drawn us, unless you had appointed us to believe, we would have no hope. Because that nothing is not a little something. And for that, we give you the glory and the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.